Good morning, my name is Lindy, and this morning I will be reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to, eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I'm sorry, I skipped verse five, didn't I? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. This concludes the reading of the word of the Lord to you today. You may now be seated. Good morning. I'm Bob Schindler, and I'm one of the missionary partners for New City Church. And I have the privilege this morning of continuing on in our series, Experiencing God, where we're looking at seven realities of, what, of how to connect with God in a way that doesn't, doesn't just know about Him, but knows Him and experiences Him on a regular basis. Now, over the years of my life, one of the privileges that I've had is also to officiate weddings. In the process of doing that, I typically ask the couple that I'm going to officiate their wedding for to go through five weeks of premarital counseling. In that counseling, I have this picture in my mind that there are two people that in that wedding are about to enter into a collision of ways that they have really very little understanding of what's about to happen. And so in that counseling, I try to help them face that reality that she has a way of living and he has a way of living and they're about to collide. So I ask them a series of questions, questions like, what do you, do you want your typical schedule to be? How much vacation do you hope to take and where? How will you handle your finances? What about children and how do they fit into your overall plans? What will you do if career conflicts come up? What about your desires for children and handling parental expectations around those? Now, in some cases, I've found that couples have talked about a few of those, but I've never known a couple that's really fully discussed all the different ways in which they live their lives. But in the process of doing that, I've also noticed that there's a very strange thing that happens to engaged couples. 
it's as if a spell is cast on them that they can't quite see reality, particularly the reality surrounding their beloved. My wife and I had that same spell. Every married, every married couple that I've ever worked with has had that same spell. And it keeps them from seeing this impending clash of their ways. Now, one particular example was when I happened to marry my banker and my hairstylist. Now, I, notice I didn't say barber, but that's a whole other story of why I had a hairstylist. But my banker and my hairstylist were going to the church that I was pastoring at the time. They were both in their late 30s. They'd never been married. So you can envision they had a long history of living very independent lives, right? And so as I sat with them, I went through that same process, but the spell was on them just like it was on everybody else I've worked with. And sure enough, could not anticipate what was about to happen. And I tried hard because I knew from just talking to them what was about to happen. But we went ahead and, and officiated over the wedding. They got married, and off they went on their honeymoon cruise. Later they told me it didn't take two days for the collision to take place. So much so that both of them told me they were looking for ways to get off the cruise ship. Now, I can tell you, fortunately, that that couple is still married today, some 25 years later. But, but the first couple of years were really rocky. Not because they didn't love each other, but because there was this collision of ways that was taking place. His way and her way. Now that example I want you to keep in your mind as we look at the sixth reality today in experiencing God. So far we've gone through five of them. We've, we've seen that God is always at work. We've seen that God pursues a relationship with us. We've seen that God invites us to join Him and that He speaks to us about how to do that. And then there comes a crisis of belief where we looked at last week. Today we look at reality number six. Henry Blackaby, the author of this book, Experiencing God, the author of the workbook and the study that is the foundation for this series, says it this way with regard to the sixth reality. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what He's doing. Now, with our mission statement in mind to help people find and follow Jesus, I'd like to rephrase that in this way, that following Jesus or journeying with Jesus requires making major adjustments to our lives. An even simpler way of saying that, a shorter version, which is our bottom line for today, goes this way. Journeying on the way requires change. Now, to help us understand that reality, I want to look at the life of Saul that was just read about from Acts 9. And there we're going to see three things about the change that Jesus requires. We're going to see, first of all, what is that change? We're going to see, secondly, why he requires that change, and third, how he requires that change. 
So let's look first of all at the what. What is the change that Jesus requires for us journeying on the way with him? Now before we dig into that answer, I want to just recall for you a couple things about this man, Saul. He grew up in Tarsus, which is on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. He grew up in a Jewish family that were also Roman citizens. He was highly intelligent and very, very religiously devout, and at a very early age was seen to be this star. And either because his parents moved all together or he was sent to Jerusalem, in his early teens he went to study on the leading rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. For the next decade and a half, he studied and rose higher and higher in the respect and admiration of the Jews of the day. He was the Patrick Holmes of the Pharisees. See, there were two sects in in Israel in that day. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was a member of the Pharisees, which was the more religious sect. He wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin that challenged, tried, and ultimately convicted Jesus of death, but he was certainly around Jerusalem in those days. And I'm confident that he was aware, very aware of who Jesus was and what he was declaring. There's no record of this man Saul ever actually encountering Jesus, but that doesn't diminish the fact that he was well aware of him. The first mention of Saul in the Scriptures is in Acts chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. Saul at that point is in his early 30s. Stephen was a leader in the early church, and this is, we don't know exactly how long, but some years maybe three, maybe five, after the founding of the church. The church has grown to thousands and thousands in Jerusalem. Stephen is one of the leaders, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and trumped-up charges are put on him. He's tried, and he's convicted of death by stoning. Now, Saul did not actually be one of the, was not actually one of those people who stoned Stephen, but it says in Acts 7 that he gave approval to his death. So significant was Stephen's death that that sparked a a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So great that all thousands of those believers were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and even into the Mediterranean. Only the apostles are left in Jerusalem. If you want to read more about that, I'd encourage you to this week by looking at Acts chapter 7 and 8. Now, Saul is one of the leaders of that persecution. We find that out in the beginning of Acts chapter 9. And he actually goes to the, the, the leaders of the day in Jerusalem and gains warrants to travel to Damascus, about 135 miles, significant travel by walking three to five days of walking, traveling, to, in order to find believers there, followers of Jesus, and imprison them as well. Now, on his way, he encounters Jesus. If you were reading, if you had the NLT with you this morning or followed along as it was read, it says, as he was approaching 
Damascus on this mission. I love the way the NIV says it. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey. The ESV even says it better, I think. It says, now as he went on his way. You see, Saul had a way of living. He had his way that was driving him on this mission when he encounters Jesus' way. And there was now this clash, this collision of ways. Just like my friend Terry and Mar- my friends Terry and Margie, Jesus and Saul are in this clash of ways. Jesus asks him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul doesn't recognize him. But he clearly understands that he's someone in authority. He says, Lord, who are you? A general term of respect and honor. Jesus answered exactly that question. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul is at a crisis of belief. Will he yield and follow the way of Jesus, or will he stay on his way? He decides to yield, goes into the city, and waits for further instructions. This was the change of leadership that Jesus required for Saul, that Jesus requires for all of the followers of his way, the way. And it happens every time those followers, including us, when our way clashes with his way. This is especially important to me in our culture today. In our culture today, it's very easy to have a big view of ourselves and a small view of Jesus. It doesn't take long to get that perspective. If you listen to the Christian culture and the noise that comes out of that. I just want to remind you, men and women, that the mission of New City Church is not to help people find and include Jesus. It's not to have our way of journeying with Jesus in the back, asking him to come up and just bless our way. The change that Jesus requires in journeying on the way is a change of leadership that puts him out in front and us following him. Now, having said that, let's talk about the why he wants this. Because to me, men and women, this is where we misunderstand the heart of Jesus maybe more than in any other place. You see, Jesus isn't asking for a change of leadership because he's some insecure bully who's trying to to force a power play where we'll finally say uncle, to pin us to the mat, as it were, for us to recognize that he's bigger than us. No, that's not the heart of Jesus. He's not some thief joy thief who wants to take the things from our lives that bring us joy and life. C.S. Lewis said, I fear not Jesus that, or God that you're there. I fear that you're a 
cosmic vivisector as he grieved the loss of his precious wife, Joy. He said, I don't fear that you're there. I fear that you, you love to experiment on live people and cause them pain. No, 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 that's not the heart of Jesus. And Lewis came to understand that through the grief, through the wrestling that Tia talked about, you know, Jesus is a life giver. Jesus wants to add, to expand our lives. Now, that might include a constriction in the beginning, but it is never finally to do that. Look back at Saul's example. Saul's on this mission. Remember, he says, we're going to persecute the church. We're going to destroy this way. Jesus encounters Saul, blinds him, and then finally, after seeing, gives Saul the beautiful privilege of inviting people into the life of Jesus. To go from the lifeless invitation to Judaism to the life-giving invitation of the way. To, to, be, to go from condemned, unforgiven, so in the weight of our sin, to helping people to see they can be loved and forgiven and free. This is the life that Jesus offers. He came and said, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. This is the life that God always intended us to live. In relationship with him. Him out front, us following Him, where we would unveil the wonders of creation and display the incredible grace and beauty and, and magnificence of God. But in our foolish rebellion, we thought it was better that we were out front. And we rejected that leadership. And all of the corruption, all of the wars, all of the Greed, all of the hurt, hatred, all of the murders that so burden us today resulted. But Jesus, in his love for you and me, would not let us stay there. Father, I will go and die so that they can be restored to life. I will go and sacrifice myself so that they would never question that I want to give to them, not take away from them. And so he did. And he restores us now to this way of living. This is how the early believers thought of it. They didn't just think about following Jesus was a way to get into heaven. They saw it as a way of living. That's why in, in Acts chapter 9, it, it speaks about this one. It says, and arrest any of the followers of the way. People who are followers of Jesus were first identified as people of the way. This is the first mention of it in Acts chapter 7. It's mentioned five more times throughout the book of Acts. Because they understood this was an invitation into life. Listen to Dallas Willard as he talks about this one who, who leads us. At the literally mundane level, Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to make wine. That knowledge also allowed him to take a few pieces of bread 
and some little fish and feed thousands of people. All these things show Jesus' cognitive and practical mastery of every phase of reality. Physical, moral, spiritual. Saying Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate in saying Jesus is smart. He's not just nice. He is brilliant. He's the smartest man who's ever lived. He has the highest qualifications to be out in front. And yet, isn't it amazing that we still struggle yielding to him? Ananias did. This story is about two people encountering Jesus, not just Saul. We notice if we read further, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to the straight street to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. And I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Now, do you remember where it says that Ananias was a believer, a follower, a member of the way? There was a point in his life where he had this encounter with Jesus earlier on, and Jesus invited him into the way, and he was following that way. But now there's another encounter with Jesus where Jesus calls out to him and says, I want you to do something. And what was Ananias' response? Whoa, 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 Jesus, you, are you, do you know who that man is? I might die if I do that. Certainly I'll go to prison. Are you sure you know how to lead in this situation? You see, this is going on regularly in the lives of those who are walking along the way, journeying along the way. But Ananias does it. He goes, lays his hands on Saul. Saul sees. Now, Ananias doesn't know at that point what's about to happen. I'm not sure if he really recognized that Jesus was a life giver there. But you all know the rest of the story. Saul goes on to become one of the leading figures in all of, not only Christianity, in all of history. Saul becomes the major spreader of Christianity throughout the Mediterranean in those days. He wrote more of the New Testament than any other human being. Do you see what Jesus was doing? He was expanding Ananias' life. He gave Ananias a chance to be a part of that. It's so life-giving. He's trying to expand his way. And so it is with each of us. When he comes in and asks for a change of leadership, this is why he does it. 
So we've looked at what he requires and why he requires it, but now how does he do it? I want you to notice he does this very personally. To both Saul and Ananias, he calls to them by their first names. Saul, Saul, Ananias. This is the way Jesus invites us, challenges us, calls to us to follow him, to realign our lives, to make the adjustments that we need. But he also does it continually. As I just mentioned about the way that he did that with Ananias. He did it, I'm sure, many times with Saul. He's done it with Tia's life, not just this time, but in other times. And he did it in my life that way. You see, in, two, in, in the early 90s, my wife and I and a team of dying people planted an EFCA church in East Tennessee. And there were some rocky first couple of years. Some of those I talked about when I spoke here this summer. But after those first couple of years, things settled down and we went into a few, some, some good years. Until my father-in-law, my wife's dad, got cancer. And he battled for two years and then he died. Six months later, my wife's mom got cancer. My wife was the primary caregiver for her mother. We were in East Tennessee. She was in South Florida. And it doesn't take a lot of insight to recognize the logistical challenges of that caregiving. There were many, many trips from Tennessee to South Florida in 2002. And at the end of the year, my mother-in-law died. And we were exhausted. We weren't exhausted by the challenges of, the, of her dying. We were, we were exhausted by the way we were trying to handle those challenges, our way of living that Jesus was colliding with. You see, my wife would go down there when she was gone for about that third of the year, off and on, she would go down there and come back exhausted looking for me to care for her. I was homeschooling three kids and pastoring a church, and when she'd come home, I'd be lo exhausted looking for her to minister to me. I did a horrible job, men and women in those days, of understanding how challenging it was to watch somebody you love die and to pour your love into them as they're wasting away. But not only did I look for my wife to um, care for me, but my way of living at that point produced anger toward my wife and my mother-in-law. Because that whole situation was slowing down the growth of the church that I'd become so identified with. And I resented them for that, that delay. But after she died, a few months after she died, I went to the leadership, two of which were my best friends, two of the other guys were the guys I that we started the church with. And I said, guys, I don't think I can do this anymore. You see, I knew that my way of doubling down and working harder in the midst of that trial wasn't working. And I went to them recognizing I needed to ask for help. I said, can you guys help us understand what to do? And they, were, they um, contacted the EFCA leadership, and as a result of that, after a month, they asked us to do what, we, what was the hardest thing we've ever done. That was to leave that church in East Tennessee and move to Charlotte, North Carolina and become a part of this church. Not, not to be on staff, but just to come and heal. We had no job. 
we were leaving the closest thing I'd ever known to family in my whole life, that church. I, I loved being a pastor. But we knew we needed to move. We knew Jesus was calling us to do this, to start over at 49. And I can't tell you how challenging it was without a whole lot more time. It was the hardest thing we've ever done. But I also can't tell you all of what made it the best thing we've ever done. 20 years later now, we see the expansion that Jesus brought about to our family, to best in my marriage, and even to my life. Part of which is evidenced by my even being able to stand here with you today. You see, Jesus does this on an ongoing basis, continually. And he also does it for each of you the same way. You know, I've been praying this week that as you listened, you would hear the Spirit of God challenging you to where Jesus is asking you to align your life with his way. As I've prayed about that for myself, I've had four things that he's brought to my mind. Four ways that he says, Bob, you need to change leadership there and allow me to lead. You need to readjust your life in those four areas. And I'm trusting him to do that same thing for you. And I'm asking him to make sure everybody here understands that as not an effort to take from you, but to ultimately give to you. Because the change that Jesus requires is a change of leadership. He does that because he wants to give to you. And he does that very personally, very strategically, and continually. You know, Chris likes to say it this way. We're either in a, in a, in a trial, coming out of a trial, or going into the trial. This is an ongoing challenge. And I know every one of you are in that place somewhere. And so Jesus requires a change for us to journey on this way. I want to conclude in praying for each of you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love to uphold you now as the life giver. You don't want to take ultimately to anybody here, but you are challenging them. I trust that you are doing that. I trust that you're showing them either this morning or you will in the days to come how you want them to change and where you want them to change this leadership. I pray again and again that you would guard every heart here and that any effort of the enemy to sow the thought that you do that because you want to take ultimately would be cast away. And everybody here would hear the invitation to life that you're giving. So Jesus, I ask you for these things now that you might be honored and that we might find the life that we long for as we journey along the way. Amen. Include this look as Lindsay has a chance to interview Alyssa and they talk a little bit about the challenges that she's facing in journeying on the way. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. So in response to what we've heard this morning, we are going to take the time to introduce you all to, to someone here in our New City family who's living this out in real time whose journey in the way has required great change, and also someone who's volunteering on our prayer team. So would you guys join me in welcoming our friend, Alyssa Humphreys.
Melissa, thank you so much for being here and for being willing to share your story. So you've been walking through a hard season right now. Um, would you just share a little bit about that and um, share a little bit about what the Lord has been teaching you during this time? Great. Thank you, Angie. Um, well, in way of explanation first about um, my hip, I have had problems with it since I was a baby and had a few surgeries growing up. And I now have advanced arthritis and I'm waiting on a hip replacement. So um, at the beginning of December, my pain just kind of got to an intolerable level. And we realized that my hip just couldn't really hold up my body very well anymore. Uh, so since December 9th, I have been sitting and laying down most of the time as a way of managing my pain. Um, I'm married and we have three children. So um, it's been a rough road. Uh, I think both dealing with the pain, but also dealing with being able to do so little to help my family during this time. Um, I, uh, sometimes I want to crawl out of my skin, and sometimes I want to crawl out of my house. Uh, I would say that I've never felt so weak or vulnerable before, and there's just been some really difficult days where I have felt, um, wow, I don't know how I'm going to get to bedtime today. And some of those days I have prayed, and some of those days I have just felt really low, and I have not prayed. <laughs> uh, I think the thing I can say, though, is that God has been with me on all of the days, and he has gotten me through to bedtime. So our family went through a pretty difficult time about seven years ago, and we faced some circumstances that turned out uh, very different from what we had hoped for. And since then, I've really struggled with what exactly it means to trust God. And I think at that time, I realized that on some level, I used to believe that trusting God was believing him for good circumstances or some version of what I'd hoped for. But once our life kind of turned upside down during that time, it became clear that that really couldn't be what it meant. <laughs> and so I've wrestled with God, um, just what, what does it mean? I want to trust you, but what does it really look like? Um, and um, I think that he's showing me that somehow trusting him has to do with knowing that he's going to get me through a day and then he's going to get me through the next day and that he is going to be with me in it. It hasn't felt easy, but I can say that he has sustained me. He is sustaining me. Um, and for that, I'm really grateful, and I feel seen by God, and I feel loved by him. So I've been trying to hold on to this verse. Um, it's in Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. And I decided to look up what sustain means, and it said to support or strengthen phys physically or mentally. I found that to be very good news, and I 
told God that I needed literally all of that. <laughs> and I've been seeing a lot of ways that he's doing that for me and for my family. So I think, of course, there's still a lot of mystery to me when it comes to God and life and pain and what it means to actually trust him in it. But I can say I know uh, that even though life is hard and that is real, I've also been finding it true that God is carrying me through. And with his help, I pray that he would allow me to grow in trusting him that he will keep carrying me through. Amen. Thank you, Alyssa, for sharing that. Thank you. Yes. So in the midst of all of this, Alyssa, you have continued to serve and volunteer for our prayer team. Why? Like, What about the Lord and about prayer compels you to serve? Yeah, um, well, I've just always been really grateful for the opportunity to be on the prayer team. Um, as I was kind of just saying, life is hard, and so when people want to open up and share things going on in their lives, it feels truly an honor. And then to be able to pray together about it is really just a joy, kind of regardless of how I'm doing. I might also say that I'm more aware of my need for God now, and so to um, get to pray with other people who need God is really encouraging to me. Um, on a good day or a bad day, for me, prayer uh, helps me to just be more aware of God's presence and his goodness and who he is. I know that God hears us and he responds to us, so it just feels like a really important and life-giving thing to me to be able to do with others on a Sunday morning. And I mean, finally, to be honest, I think most of all, I just love doing it. Uh, praying with other people is really fun for me, and it's a great joy, so whether I'm on crutches or not. <laughs> thank you, Alyssa. Would you guys thank Alyssa for sharing this morning? So, thank you. Let me pray to co conclude our time. God, thank you so much for Alyssa. God, thank you for her story. God, for what you're doing in her life. God, I'm grateful for her word about the word sustain. God, you are a great sustainer. I pray for each one of us in here. God, as some of us are walking through a valley, um, and even though some of us may be on mountains, God, you, I pray that you will sustain us. God, you will carry us. God, as we enter in um, to a time of worship, Lord, I just pray that uh, we will just cast our cares on you, Lord. God, we will just remember that we are who you say we are. God, we are loved and we are worthy and you are with us. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.